1: hello everybody welcome to new books and music a podcast channel of the new books network i'm your host dan moran my guest today is michael Kaler. michael is an associate professor at the institute for the study of university pedagogy at the university of toronto the author of work on saint paul gnosticism and early christianity his research has been published in harvard theological review journal of early christian studies and other journals and today we'll be talking about his new book which also looks at religious ideas but in a place that some people may find surprising. And that book is Get Shown the Light, Improvisation and Transcendence in the Music of the Grateful Dead, just published by Duke University Press. I read it. It's a great book. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. So late in the book, let's start at the ending. Late in the book, you quote Jerry Garcia on the subject of what he and the dead chased or sought after during their performances. And I want to read you a quotation from Garcia and ask you a question about it. This is Jerry Garcia, quote, from the point of the view of being a player, it's the thing you can't make happen. But when it's happening, you can't stop it from happening. I want it to surprise me, to continue to surprise me. I don't want to know anything about it. End quote. What is it?
0: I mean, I could be a smartass here and just say, like, if Garcia didn't want to know anything about it, why should we be asking about it? You know, like, which which is a joke, but it's... uh but there's some meaning to it. Like, I think Garcia especially was extremely concerned with with not tying things down too tightly uh, in order to leave room for stuff so it could keep expanding and keep doing interesting things. And so I think he would've, he would've as he said, he would've felt like there was this cool, sorry, I, I swear sometimes, are words like the S word acceptable? No. no. Oh, okay. Cool. There's this cool stuff <laughs> <laughs> happening uh, that he doesn't. He he doesn't really want to nail down too much, and I am really sympathetic to that. So I I don't want to get too prescriptive with regard to it. For me, when Garcia is talking about quote unquote it, the the it or the the whatever the X factor, to me that's that's this sort of magical feeling of the band really coming together and the room really coming together sort of with the band. Uh, So The Dead talked a lot about how the energy went back and forth. Like they'd sort of manifest the vibe in the room, but obviously also what they were doing would affect the vibe in the room. And there was, there was a real dialogic interplay between the band and the the audience, just as there was between the band members. So my feeling like, this is just me talking, but my feeling when you get this, this it or this X factor happening uh, with the band is it's it's when something you couldn't have predicted just goes really weirdly right, you know. Like stuff goes off in a in a direction that's completely appropriate, but you're pretty sure it was spontaneous for the band. It was definitely spontaneous for you, but it just it, it combines the feeling of spontaneity with pre-composition. Like it feels perfect, but also completely unplanned. That to me, that's that's the like with the, when they're in the middle of a jam and. People, like members of the band, are A, responding to each other, but also in their responses, they're building this unique sort of sonic space that didn't exist 30 seconds before, won't exist 30 seconds later, but it's just, but it's right. You know, it's it's kind of magic. That's, that's my that's how i would relate to this but i'm not garcia so i don't
1: know <laughs> well even in a band like the dead of course like you know the, he, like this did not happen every show this did not happen every night and and the and the for us famous as the dead were for looking for this moment you know the dead would be the first ones to tell you this does not happen every time
0: no although I feel like in the early, like once they got really going and like whatever, like late 1967 sort of thing, for at least up until they took their break in 74, I would say in most shows, there's going to be at least a moment of, oh my God. Um, and as somebody who was really deeply involved in the free improv uh, scene in Toronto for a long time, I mean you know, that makes sets worthwhile. Like I've gone to many shows where it's like a 45 minute set and, and people are futzing around for most of it. But if if we got 30 seconds of the band coming together for that magic, that that validates it.
1: Yeah. It's funny because it's, it's hard to talk about. We have to rely on things like calling it magic and like, you know, it and stuff yeah. like that. So it's really interesting, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: But that's good too, right? Like we want to yeah. leave these things, these things open so that they don't get nailed down.
1: Yeah. So let me back up. I have to ask you this question. So so you're a deadhead, you know, as am I. You've been a deadhead for years, you know, as have I. At some point, you start to really think about the subject of this book, and you start to tell your friends and people, you know, you know, I'm starting this book about the dead now and how they, they saw transcendence through improv. Did anybody give you a funny look? Did anybody say, ah, uh, you know, because it's easy to say, oh, classic deadhead, here we go.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think... <laughs> I have a feeling my friends are quite polite so I have a feeling that that there were suppressed funny looks you know as well but yeah there's it's true like that's that's something that comes up I mean there's a few different things to unpack here like number 1 I was extremely fortunate that my uh, a lot of this book is coming out of my my doctoral work uh for my uh, ethnomusicology doctor at York university, whereas working with a guy called Rob Bowman, who's one of the big names in bringing sort of popular music studies into academic contexts, especially in Canada. And he was, he never gave me the weird looks. I mean, when I said stupid things, he gave me the weird looks, but I mean, the topic is he, he was very supportive with regard to that, which is, I appreciate. Uh, and that made things a lot easier. I think, um, Number one, if you're going to get interested in popular music and religion, you are going to have to get over that feeling of like, oh, people are going to look at me weird. Because yeah, they are. And if 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 that invalidates what you're doing, then you should not be doing this because you're just, you're not going to get away from it, you know? So that's, I feel like number one, is just, it's an entry requirement for, for getting into the field. Um, number two, again, I'm a deadhead, which I you know i tried to write the book so that it would be accessible to non-deadheads for sure but i also lay it out clearly in the in the introduction like i am a deadhead i do feel like what the dead w- were doing was musically and spiritually extremely significant and so for me this is like uh you know if you wanted to talk about similar things in beethoven nobody would give you the hairy eyeball because Beethoven has has become accepted by the canon. Um, my view is that the dead are on a similar level to what Beethoven was doing, um, and we'll have to come back in 200 years to see if society has accepted that definition. But from my perspective, it's not... From my perspective, if, you f- if, if somebody else is finding that ridiculous, I'm kind of like, well, you know, would you find it equally ridiculous for Beethoven or for Bach or something like that? So it's... There's that level of things. Um, I would say also questions like this come from an understanding of popular music as being an inferior form of art, right? So, and this ties into what I was just saying, like, if it's capital H, high, capital A, art, these things are legit. But if it's pop music, these things are not legit. And that's, that's a dichotomy that has been breaking has been breaking down for like the past 30 40 years so it's i don't i don't think it's a particularly useful dichotomy um and and i think lots and lots of people are are challenging that for you know whoever their their favorite artists are um and then i guess fourth would be like let's get the questions of whether of my own personal perspective out of the picture. But as I note in the book, whatever your attitude about the phenomenon of a group feeling that it's going to create a musical practice that can help it generate transcendent experience, and a group of people like yourself and, and myself who believe that they successfully did that, whether you think we're crazy and the group's crazy or whatever, it's still pretty interesting, right? Like That's, <laughs> that's a kind of nifty... <laughs> Thing. I mean, even if you, right. even if you're a total dead agnostic or dead hater, it's still pretty fascinating that this group could come out and decide we're going to do this totally weird thing, and then we're going to convince, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people that this weird thing is actually happening, and we're going to do, we're going to do it for most of our career, and we're going to, I mean, they didn't have a big hit until like 1985 or 1986, right? We're going to sacrifice a lot of commercial rewards in order to pursue this thing, just from the. Uh, from the outside opinion point of view. This is valid. Like this is this is a fascinating.
1: Yes. No. No anthropologist would 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 walk by this and say nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here. I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> so there's
0: there's a quote, and now the the person's name is is escaping my mind. But somebody was saying, uh, some artist. Damn, and I ca- I cannot remember who it was. Was saying, um, I'm not saying. You know, people have called me a genius. I'm not saying I'm a genius, but you got to get, you got to be pretty smart to get a whole bunch of people to call you a genius. You know, I feel like it's here too. Maybe what they're doing was illusory, but it's still pretty fascinating that this illusory thing got so many of us uh, on board.
1: Yeah. There was one of those slogans of, in the 70s about the Grateful Dead. I think it was in the 70s. It said, you know, I think it went, though not the best at what they do, they are the only ones that do what they do. And that's true.
0: And that's important for the dead, ready. Right? I think they were forthright about it. And that ties into what you were saying before about not every show was wonderful. Um, if, if there's two or three different people doing the same thing, then yeah, you're competing against the other people and you better be wonderful because otherwise Joe over there is going to take your gig. But if you are the only person <laughs> doing this thing, then if, if and, and if you have fans like us who are into this thing, then you can, you can suck sometimes because you got a captive audience. We can't get this anywhere else, you
1: know? Yeah, you can't get it anywhere else. It's truly like the only game in town. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes. Yeah. So, yeah, so I right, well, let's let's talk about this because you mentioned about how the idea of like, you know, music has become more serious, right? So in the mid-sixties, if someone said one day there will be books written by academics about the Beatles, people people would have laughed, right? And you know, it was the same way if someone told you this in the 30s about film, there'd be film scholars, people would have, you know, just laughed you out of the room. So one of the things that I that I learned from your book, which I thought was really it never occurred to me till I read your book was that we take improv and jamming for granted, right? And now it gets what you call you call it respect from all quarters. But you point out that improv was not always so positively regarded in popular music of the West, and I was like, oh wow, that's really interesting to so, so talk about that. Why not? Why wasn't it popular?
0: It's weird, right? I mean, it's 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 extremely strange given, especially that the West is this like Europe, is this weird outlier. I mean, you and I are of European descent, and obviously Europe colonized the world, so so it could be hard to get perspective on it, but most of the other musical cultures that I know anything about feature lots and lots and lots of improvisation, and it's not a problem, right? You do Hindustani classical music, like Raga-type stuff, and that's improvised all the time, and nobody's freaking out about it. In the West, for whatever reason, that That didn't happen like that that's or that sentiment went away so i would just preface this answer first of all by saying that it's not the respect given to improv that needs to be explained from a world historical context it's the respect not being given to improv that that needs to be explained um and there's a few i don't have a definite answer like i copyright laws honestly I think would be, would be part of it. Just like, you know, you can, you can't copyright an improvisation, you know, with, a, with a Raga, like, you know, if you're playing Raga Yaman or something like that, like there'll be guides to it, but there's not, the Raga itself is not copyrightable. You can't sort of nail it down in the same way that you can a song. So I would be, and, and we know that, you know, before the recording, uh, sound recording industry got going, you know, people were making their money off of music by selling sheet music. You know, so, so I think that might be p- partly that, just like we've got this huge financial business that encourages us to record songs as discrete, bounded entities. So I, I feel like that's part of it. Um, I feel like um, in the Romantic era, so the late 18th century into the early 19th century, you get the, um, the rise of, of a concept of art and of music as sort of works of art. So rather than being functional things, they become individual sort of works, right? Like I think prior to that, a musician would have been more like we regard a carpenter, right? Like we don't, you know, if you hire a carpenter to, to put in a new staircase in, in your house or something like that, unless it's a really, really good staircase, you're probably not regarding that specific staircase as this wonderful work of art, right? You're saying, I I needed thing X, I hired a, a talented craftsman to do it, and the crafts, person and the person did it. And I think music was more with regard to that. You know, I'm, I'm a king and I'm getting crowned. I need appropriate music for this, just like I need appropriate food for it. So I'm going to hire a really good cook and a really good composer to do this. I think there was more that idea. And then... In the Romantic period, you start to get this idea of, no, art is actually these unique things called works of art that great artists produce. Um, And so we mustn't mess with them. We are not as great, you know, you are not as great as Beethoven. So if Beethoven wrote down these notes, then by God, you're playing these notes. I don't want to hear your notes. You know, I want to hear Beethoven's notes, kind of thing, or Mozart's or whoever. So I think that's a big change that happens around 250 starting around 250 years ago that that gets us away from improvisation like we know i mean mozart was jamming like he was he was improvising you know all over the place a lot of classical composers were but with the idea that music is made up of individual works of art which are the product of great minds which we we dare not mess with you start to get a, a decrease of that of, of improvisation and that I think also there's a need for control and having things be precisely delineated. And I think that's for better or for worse, for worse (laughs) in many cases, uh, capitalist, colonialist, European descended cultures. I mean, they're, they're into that sort of rigor and rigidity and control. And I think improvisation can threaten that a little bit because it can lead us to places that we weren't, we didn't know we were going, and that might be sort of challenging. That's, so that's, that's, some answer anyways i would also just add too that um there's always a gap between what's officially talked about and what what folks are actually doing so for instance when i started doing this research on uh early rock improvisation i was talking to a guy an older guy um i know who was in rock bands in the You know, early '60s, and I had been saying, "Oh, it really looks like 1965 was sort of the year where rock bands start to improvise." And he's like, "Ah, we were doing it before. Just, you know, we didn't we didn't record it. Nobody cared about it. You know, it wasn't officially acknowledged." But uh, so, I'm sure that folks are improvising and jamming throughout history, just because it's normal and natural. It's just it's not officially recognized until a whole bunch of different streams until the classical world starts embracing it the jazz folks start going further and further out and getting more and more into it the rock folks start doing it then it becomes legit but i think if you if you could walk around the the <laughs> the garages or basements of a typical north american suburb in 1963 i have a feeling you'd you'd hear a fair amount of improvisation going on
1: yeah, that's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So you talked about, you know, you said that the rock musicians were doing it before it was officially recorded, right? So you talk about it in the book, the rock musicians become more confident and they start to think of themselves as artists, just like jazz musicians. It's like they had to catch up with like the jazz crowd, right? And you paraphrase Mike Hefley's idea that improv arises from two things. You have to have knowledge of and comfort in a tradition. And that kind of that, I underline that in the book. You have to know a tradition and you have to have comfort in it. So can you talk about that? Sure. So, yeah, so... There isn't, I mean, improv is not just
0: pulling stuff out of nowhere. Like there was one completely open improvisation in, in musical history. And it happened when the first human being made the first piece of music and everything after that, like improv happens in a context, inevitably, uh, even like free improv type stuff, which just tries to eliminate the context is still you hear it and you go, yeah, that's, I know what that is. That's free improv. Like it's still bounded. So the, the idea that improvisation is just completely open freedom is, is not really realistic. Um, and so for like improvisation and the requirements of a given context sort of work together, I feel like. So if you're one of the examples I use in the, in the book is like, you know, if you can imagine BB King sitting in at an Indian, like, uh, India, Indian, um, you know, music classical music performance, and it's it's not gonna go well. B.B. King was an amazing improviser who fully understood the context of the blues, but he was not trained in the context of Hindustani music. And so he couldn't improvise appropriately. I mean, it might be fascinating as a as a mashup, but it would not be satisfying if you were a purist uh in either tradition. So I would say that, you know, if you for improvising to be really sort of fluid and comfortable and sort of working within a tradition that tradition needs to exist there there needs to be sort of an understanding of excuse me how that how that works uh and rock didn't have that as much I mean it's it's it develops right like if you look at 1950s rock and rock and roll you can really see where it's coming from or like like the it's you know it's mainly either country or R b or blues or some combination of these three things but it's it's i don't hear a lot of it there's some precursors like buddy holly or some you know somebody like that where we we can hear that they're sort of the future but for a lot of it it's it's not if rock had stopped in 1958 it would be tough to say what it was exactly you know like it would be sexed up blues or something like that like it it wasn't really itself um, at that point. And I think it wasn't until the mid-60s that rock start, when, when you start to get the first generation of rock musicians who are all, um, who grew up on rock, for whom it's not some strange new thing. I think it's at that point that you start to to come up with the sort of explicit and implicit rules and sort of bind, boundaries that define what rock is and and what's, what's acceptable in the rock context versus what's not. And with other improvising traditions we're often not privy to the uh, to that development right like you know Hindustani raga music again to return to that has been going on for for centuries they know what's going on like they've developed it over hundreds and hundreds of years of, of working out how this how this form works uh for rock it just started in the 50s uh, and so when you get a new form of music coming up the context for it, what what's allowable? Its boundaries aren't yet fully designed, and that can make it difficult to improvise confidently. So, you know, to know what to do when you don't have an explicit guide, uh, and it can also make it difficult to assess the improvisation and go, was this good or was this bad? And uh, <laughs> I don't know. So I think it's by the mid '60s that rock starts to get that tradition, like build up a tradition of what rock means, that people could use as a way of of guiding their their inspiro- uh, improvisation.
1: That's interesting because you say you have to have kind of a guide, right? So one of the things I wrote in the margins for that part, I wrote down Billy Strings because he has a guide, which is the history of like all that music that he loves. And then that's kind of like telling him like how to go ahead and improv.
0: Yeah. And it's, was, yeah, I th- I think it just fights at the. There's a romantic, smaller romantic version of improv that says it's just you just do whatever. Yeah, but it's not. But it's not. It never is. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. So let's let's talk about the Dead again. What about the San Francisco scene in the mid '60s, fostered improv and and you talk about a lot of different bands like them and, and the Airplane. Um, what what about San Fran in the '60s was a perfect setting to foster improvisation in a band like the Dead?
0: Yeah. So there's two. Th- yeah, I'll, I'll answer that question. Then I got one other thing to point to note that it that's, confuses me still. But yeah, there's a few things I would say. Uh, drugs are number one. Sorry to be blunt, but uh, you know, people were getting high a lot and and getting high on psychedelics uh, as opposed to you know, the opiates or or cocaine or stuff like that. Um, And those are things that tend to lead people (laughs) to improvise or if you're not sympathetic, to noodle aimlessly. You know, they are also things that tend to make people get really convinced of the power of what they're doing whether or not it's good you know and so that and you need that kind of determined you know determination in order to to enable you to, to break new ground kind of thing so i mean a lot of i'm not going to glamorize san francisco improvisations like a lot of them were not that great but i think the drugs inspired people to a degree and they also gave people confidence whether that confidence was deserved or not that what they were doing was was valid so that's i would say that's number one um number 2 bo bohemian lifestyles uh so they these these are folks who are really into the beats um some of them were beats i mean the the guiding the, the dividing line between early hippies and late beats is is pretty fluid people are going back and forth across it and so and the the whole beat thing um with its embrace of Zen and it's sort of Buddhist ideas and it's sort of rambly ideas and it's Kerouac's idea of, uh, you know, spontaneous prose and Allen Ginsberg going first thought, best thought, all that kind of thing. Like there's a lot of, that they, they, were, they were inspired by how they perceived sort of beboppy type jazz. But so I think that whole Bohemian scene would have privileged that idea of just, go, you know, just improvise, break the rules, do what's what's on your mind at a given moment. So I think that's another factor. Um, we're, in the early to mid-60s, we've got sort of high art getting interested in improvisation. So that's the birth of minimalism, that period. So in San Francisco, Terry Riley is doing NC. Uh, there's there's electronic composers like Pauline Oliveros and those people doing all kinds of stuff. And a lot of the early minimalist or sort of avant-garde um musical expressions have to do with, with improvisation, uh, often in the frame of like seeing th- uh, the the works of art as a process. So for for instance, for N.C., he doesn't say you're improvising, but he does say, here's the process that this piece is going to go through. Uh, and in working through that process, you have to figure out how to do it as it, as it kind of goes along. And this is all building on stuff like John Cage from the thirties onwards. Um, you know, a lot of, so, so there's, there's high art interest in improvisation coming in. There's also a, a greater presence of, of non-Western, uh, musical forms to draw on. Like, uh, Ali Akbar Khan is touring. Uh, there's a, there's a Indian music school going on in San Francisco. There's one in Montreal. People like Ravi Shankar are making determined efforts to, to do outreach. The album, the records are more available and stuff like that. So people are also able to listen to Raga stuff, especially, um, that's, that's improvised and get inspired by that as well something I noted in my book um raga is is an incredibly subtle and sophisticated form but if you're a stoned musician it doesn't necessarily sound subtle and sophisticated right if you're not if you're not appreciating it you know fully which most of those guys weren't it can sound like okay I just I just jam uh, so I think that would have been inspirational but I think the one of the big ones was this idea of collective joy and not wanting songs to stop. I mean, it comes up over and over again, especially with the dead situation is they viewed themselves as a dance band and not just when pig pen was leading, but just, it was their function to be a dance band. People were out there dancing. They did not want to stop at three minutes or four minutes. They wanted to keep dancing and the band wanted to do that. And so, you know, what do you do? You, ex- you extend the song so people can keep going so i think that's and that's and for me that's sort of the the fun one of the fundamentals like if your band isn't making people if you're playing in the san francisco ballrooms in the in the mid to late 60s and your band is not making people dance you are not getting booked back so your your band's existence depends on getting people dancing and so i feel like that would be one of the big motivators
1: yeah because all the times you've seen the dead, of course, everyone's on their feet the whole time. But of course, imagine imagine being in sixty five or 66 and you're in the Grateful Dead, and you're playing, and everyone's dancing. That they, they had to give each other glances and say, "We're not going to stop, right?" Like everyone's having too much fun. Like why would we stop doing this? Keep exactly. Going. Yeah,
0: people are digging <laughs> people are taking it. We're taking it. And also
1: it gave the freedom. I mean, you know,
0: you could. I forget which book. Um, oh, it's the that San Francisco Nights book uh, where the authors mentioned that the audiences were sometimes a little bit. Less than completely discriminating. I mean, they were just like, if you gave them a good beat, you could you could play in the midnight hour for half an hour and and they're they're happy. Which,
1: which the dead did. Which the dead did. Yeah. And 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 you quote Garcia a couple of times in the book saying that watching people dance is a great it's great feedback for the band, right? That's a great way to tell how you're doing. It is. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about let's go for it a little more. So now the dead are together. It's 1966. They've really begun to improv at full tilt, and you argue that they came up with this thing called the framework, and you say it's quote a means through which live rock music could be transformed into a flexible improvisational art form. Right. So you go through the whole thing. There's nine elements to it, right? But but as a whole, like what is this thing that you call the framework?
0: and thank you for saying as you call because i want to stress first of all this is a hypothetical reconstruction on my part right like i there have been i mean garcia does say at one part point we have a framework for how we work but i don't have any notes from i would love to get a, a note from a meeting in 1967 where they lay it out but i mean they've they never to my knowledge delineate the way i delineate what the framework is. So I could be talking, talking out my hat here. I, I could be totally wrong. Um, there are suggestions for band members that they do have a, a definite understanding of a, of a structure or process that they use. Um, but, but they don't go into a lot of detail with it. For me, the, the framework is is sort of it's a way of describe. I mean, first of all, it's descriptive, right? It's like it's based on me listening to a whole bunch of recordings from 60, primarily 66, 67, 68, and going, huh, what are they doing here? And just analyzing their process. So in that sense, it's 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 empirical that's coming, it's coming out of the data to just say this is what they are doing. Um, but I think too, it's it's also a way of describing how the band Consciously or not, created a guide to their musical process that enabled them to extend to incorporate extended improvisation into a genre that didn't have such guides. So again, we've been talking about raga, so why not use that again? Like if you've got, like if if you're a Hindustani classical musician, you've got the three-stage thing where you start out with the alap, where you you explore the raga and then you and then you you pick things up and the tabla come in and you get more active and then you get very energetic towards the end. Like it's got these structures that have been developed over centuries. Rock didn't have those structures. Um, and so one of the things about the framework I think is the Grateful Dead going, Hmm, how do we do this improvisation thing in, in a rock context? Um, and yeah, so there's, those are two aspects. Like number one, just empirically it's what's coming out of the recordings as I hear them. Uh, effectively it's also aesthetically I guess it's a way of figuring out how you do improv in a rock context I would argue that practically speaking um like the life of a rock musician sucks like it's it's really it's 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 tough like the, it's wonderful in many ways but it's also tough and especially I think back in the in the mid to late 60s and so if you're going to do if your goal is to do exp- adventurous experimental music uh, you got to keep in mind that they're doing this stuff after driving for eight hours and everybody's exhausted or nobody's eaten anything except candy bars for two days or somebody got a little too stoned and is spaced out or they can't hear each other because the sound systems are terrible or they're all really stressed because they got ripped off last night. and They don't even know if they're going to get gas money. Like there's all this stuff coming in. And so I feel like having some sort of a structure helps like, like when the inspiration is flowing, you can just go with it, right? Like there's no problem. But there's going to be nights when the inspiration is not flowing. And so having some idea of a process that you built up can help you do the magic thing, even when you're not feeling very magic, um, you know, due to touring circumstances or whatever. So that's, yeah, that's what I see the framework as. Basically, I see it like they're playing they have these cool experiences that they think are magical and they go, huh, we would really like to have more of these experiences. If we do X, we seem to get more of these experiences. So let's keep doing X. Um, But we'd also like to get paid. So we need to make sure that the way that we need to find a way to fit X into a context where folks are enjoying our songs and dancing to them so that they're, so that, you know, we can walk out the door with gas money. And that's, to me, that's, that's what the framework is, is figuring out how do you do this in a rock context. And the way that they figured it out was you extend endings like a fade out, but in real time, combined with group interplay to take you through various different different spaces relatively smoothly, uh, and to make sure that there's continual, continual motion going on, that they're never just sitting on one thing, but they're continually sort of flowing from one space to another.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. You just made me realize or think about the idea that, you know, professional sports is, is a lot of improvisation. So it's like the framework, right? You want to put yourself as an athlete in a spot where I can have the best chance for something magical happening, right? Yeah, yeah so it
0: let- doesn't. And when, again, when, like, you know, sometimes you're just in the zone for the start and you don't need the strategy, but when you're not in the zone, you still have to go out and play. So you, you'd you better have a way to to cover for that. Yeah.
1: So you look at eight approaches to improvisation that you say your ears tell you, and you go through, you know, you go through each of these very patiently. You talk about soling over changes, what you call moving through sections, something you call that within songs model, and there's eight of them. But I want to ask you about two of these specifically that grabbed me the most. The first was, and I love this part, dance tunes. You know how do dance tunes? Because it seems like they'd be opposite. Like you think, like, hey, dance tunes, and 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 you talk about the dead being a, a dance band, which is a really great way to think about them, right? How do dance tunes lead to improv?
0: Well, I mean, it depends how you def- like. I don't see that they don't. You know, like okay, I, I feel like I feel like they don't. I mean, the the difference is, I think it's it's not a question so much of how how they lead to improv, but whether, but rather a question of the sort of parameters that the improv has. And what I argue in the book is that for the dance tunes typically led by Pigpen in the early days or stuff like, I don't know, Franklin's Tower or whatever in the later days, or Eyes of the World, um, the, the improv has tighter parameters uh because they're just about they don't want to risk <laughs> stopping people dancing at any point so they don't you know like you listen to a good dark star and there's or playing in the band or something and there's places where it just turns into noise or turns into almost silence and just totally breaks down um where which is great um for the dance tunes, I think the focus is, no, we we want to give people a good half hour of solid dancing to turn on your love light or something like that. So they're still improvising in those pieces for sh- absolutely for sure. But they're not, they're keeping the improvisation controlled enough, like turn on your love light. It's going to be on two chords, you know, most of it, it's never It The music's never going to go away to the point that you have to stop dancing. So that's it's just it's functional. Like, I think they're both they're both improvising. But in one, the context that they're working in is one where they want to keep people dancing. And so they're being extra careful not to do stuff that would get in the way with with people boogieing.
1: That's great because even in the you just in love light of course when when Pigpen even when he would tell his long stories about like you know I thought that was the Brooklyn Bridge and all those things like if you're not dancing you're at least bopping, like you're at least following the baseline so you never like sit down in the middle and get up again like for, it's a half an hour of of aerobics
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and again, they can do this right. Like the nice thing about the dead that it's a luxury that most bands don't have nowadays is they're playing three and four hour shows, right? So so you can get you can give half an hour of it to dance music, and then you can give twenty five minutes to a spacey dark star, and that's okay because you've still got another couple hours to go.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So let's talk about another model of improv. You call it the trapdoor model. So explain that to us.
0: Well, this I mean, if you want to get into improvisation, like you. You need to figure out how you're going to get into it, right? So you can. The dance tunes model is basically let's follow Pigpen, you know, while Pigpen's alive, and just let's just keep keep grooving, and we'll watch Pigpen really closely, and and that'll that'll teach us where where we need to go. the The framework classic model is let's go where on a record there would be a fade out and let's just take that fade out and play it as as long as we feel like. But what they also did sometimes was to write specific parts in tunes that would sort of open the door to the improv section. So in like in Uncle John's band, there's that D minor thing, da, da 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 where they where they really like they 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 change the tonality of it, they change the time signature and and it's and there's not really any words over it, right? So it's clear, it's a part that they've written to say, "Hey, here we are in the jamming part." And it's going to be in D minor even though the rest of the song was in G type of thing or playing in the band. You know the way it sort of well, yeah, that's more complicated, but um, an alligator might be another example of a, of a place where they just write a part. Like an alligator, it's it's what feels like it should be the, the sort of climax and you're waiting for it to resolve and then it just never does. They take that as their jumping off point to go off and jam. So I just identify this as another way of establishing how do we get into improvisation. You know, we get into it by, in some cases, by writing a specific part where We go, that's the jam part. You know, for the rest of it, we is the singing part, but then we've got this part, and that's where we go off and jam.
1: Yeah, because they had to make those decisions, right? The, people that don't listen to The Dead assume they would just get out because they were famous for not having a set list and stuff. But of course, the more you listen to them, you realize they did have patterns they followed to try to maximize themselves as musicians, right? All right, let's so we talked about, you know, how the dead thought about improv, how they did it, how other people wrote about it. You talk about how other bands did it. So I want to move now into the second part of your title, and I want to talk about transcendence. So, what's the connection between improvisation and transcendence?
0: Huh. Uh, <laughs> I'd start by saying that I don't know that there is a ne- necessarily a connection. Number one. Uh, I just think about like conversations with my mother, for instance, where she would, she, I think some of her biggest spiritual moments, certainly with regard to music had to do with Bach, with listening to Bach. And that's not improvised music, you know, that's, thats I mean, although it probably was more so in Bach, Bach's day, but what she was listening to was not, you know, and for her spirituality, that very precise, controlled, sort of elegant, you know, clockwork, sort of unfolding of definite patterns, that was transcendent music for her. So my, my, my spirituality is me, but I'm not, I'm not claiming it's a universal thing. Um, for me, the most wonderful moments in my sort of musical or spiritual life have been through happy accidents. So it has been through stuff that, that, if, that really affects me that just sort of comes in unexpectedly um, I don't know if you know a singer songwriter called Jonathan Richmond. Uh, yeah. But he's, he's the poet of those sorts of moments where you're just, you're looking down at the pavement and you're seeing a cheering gum wrapper and you're going, Oh my God, that's, that's amazing. You know, that's, that's more where my spirituality comes in um, my whoa moments sort of thing. So for me, there is that connection. Like I don't, I find music intellectually, I can appreciate the sort of rigorous perfection of pre-scripted, sort of completely composed music or moments, for sure. But it tends not to get me, you know, in a heart level the same way that hearing stuff which just, bam, this stuff just, you know, came out of nowhere and just sort of whapped you and, and it was unexpected. And we were like, that's, that's what tends to get me. So it, it could just be a personal thing. Um, that said, there are a few ways in which improvisation and transcendent experience can can be linked, I think. Number one, Sun Ra, the, the jazz musician, um, talked a lot about his use of improvisation as a way of en- enabling his musicians to go beyond what they could consciously understand. So for, for Sun Ra, he felt like we were trapped here on earth and this we were sort of ignorant and had been cut off from true enlightenment and it's, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were not able to access the sorts of cosmic realities that he was talking about consciously, but he felt we could, if we could just sort of put the conscious brain offline a little bit and and improvise, we could do stuff that was better than we could think. And I don't go all the way with Sun Ra in in his musings, but I definitely do in my own playing experience, for sure. I frequently found myself playing stuff that's better than I like smarter than I am (laughs) consciously, you know? So I feel like that, the, the act of improvisation can open us up to stuff that's better than than, than we could do. Um, I think, you know, really good music is unbelievably complex and unbelievably conceptually challenging. And sometimes that's too much for us to get to consciously. Whereas sometimes we can, if we trust in the spirit or the improvisation or whatever, we can sort of fumble our way there. Yeah. So that's one thing I would say. Another thing I would say that we, you know, we, we need to think about transcendence as being dialogic. Right. So there's there's a trigger, but you know, as with the case with my mom, like her trigger was Bach. Bach is not a trigger for me. You know, there's just there, the the trigger needs to be there, but also it needs to work in the context that it's that it's it's being activated. And I think so for that you need some degree of flexibility, right? Like you the same playing exactly the same piece the same way every night. Is not necessarily going to work if you have different audiences, um, you know, in different with different concerns. There's a great book by Ragula Qureshi uh, called Sufi Music of uh, India and Pakistan, I believe, on on Kuali, which is a Sufi style of style of music, where she goes into rigorous. Detail about what's happening in this koali performance, like literally every 10 seconds by 10 seconds as she's watching the musicians watch the audience and go, because the, the musicians are playing in order to help generate a sort of spiritual experience in their audience. And they're watching the audience really carefully and they're adjusting what they're doing on the fly. They're going, oh, that guy looks like he's going into trance. Okay, obviously this line worked. Let's repeat this line a few more times. That person's looking bored. Okay, let's we need to change the texture. Like there's... I feel like for transcendent experiences to be generated there needs to be a certain degree of flexibility on on the the musicians parts because the context is always going to be to a degree different.
1: Yeah, you can't script it. You can't write it. You can't write transcendence in sheet music.
0: You can't. No, I mean no. Well,
1: well maybe you can. Oh, the Bach mom, example. Yeah, the Bach mom, example you can, right? It depends for, on for, who's for listening. Me, you,
0: yeah, for me you for me you can't. Uh from um you could.
1: Sure, sure. Okay. Well, let's let's go ahead, let's go ahead now and, and talk about. You said before you were talking about different kinds of spirituality. You mentioned Jonathan Richmond. Like, so you talk at length about whether or not the band thought of their music as spiritual or religious. And people use those words interchangeably all the time, but you you do not. You do not. So, can talk about the difference between those two words before we get into what the dead thought.
0: Sure. So, uh, I, yeah, I feel like those are. <laughs> So the context for this is I was presenting a paper, uh, a much earlier version of one of the chapters in the book at a, at a Grateful Dead Scholars conference and a session. And I used the word religious and all of a sudden you could see like people just got these fixed looks and they were like, they were, they were not happy about that. And, you know, and that was your <laughs>
1: feedback. That yeah, was your feedback, exactly. yeah, like Jerry Garcia getting feedback from the audience. That was exactly. Yours.
0: They did not appreciate that word, and and in the question period, they they made it clear that they felt no. The Grateful Dead are spiritual, they are not religious, and so I was like, well, okay, I, I guess there's no hardcore, hard and fast definition to either word. Like I do feel like we have a sort of general, fuzzy definition of spirituality, as being. First of all, it often gets a positive connotation, especially for countercultural cultural types, um, where religion will have a, a negative connotation, which is what was at play at, at that conference. Um, it will have to do with, I think, formalization and institutionalization of the religious tradition. Um, it'll have to, do, yeah, with like how sort of set and controlled uh, the, the religious tradition is, with spirituality often being much more fluid and sort of open and loose and religion being fairly tight. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think probably in you. Yeah. The, the we'll next let's question. you mentioned, Yeah. Yeah. Let's the go ahead the, with the Grateful the,
1: Dead. Yeah. What did the Grateful we, Dead think about that?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think like the the dead are definitely so. There's there's a two. There was interviews where Garcia goes, I don't want to use the word religion. I don't like that word. Uh, so that's pretty clear. Uh, there's also a great discussion that. Um, Uh, John Barlow, one of the dead's lyricists uh, recounted that he had with Robert Hunter early, very early in the 1970s, where he says to Hunter, in Barlow's words, like this is, we don't have a recording of it. So who knows? But what Barlow said, he said was that, um, Hey, this Grateful Dead thing is looking kind of like a religion so far. It doesn't have an ideology or a dogma. So that makes it kind of okay as a religion. Uh, But, you know, we got to be careful not to get too dogmatic because people might take it as, as being, you know, the bad kind of religion. So, that comment to me implies that it's not as cut and dried as Garcia's. Like it's not just fuzzy wuzzy spirituality. Like there were there were folks in the dead who were recognizing the distinction and recognizing that there were ways in which the the dead scene functioned religiously. From my part, I think it. Like I just think. It's it's ambiguous, right? But I do feel like it crosses. It's too. It's got too much structure in it to be for me, like it to, to be on the spirituality side of the line. Like it's got it's got sacred texts, right? The primarily Hunter lyrics, some Barlow lyrics as well. It's got. um it's got sacred rituals of how things work. It's got, especially as the dead formulaized their approach, you know, with the two sets and we're going to have drums in space and then, and then the ballad and then Bob, we are doing one more Saturday night or whatever. Like it's got, so it's, it's got a regular structure. Um, It's got, it's got the iconography like the dancing bears and the steal your face and all that kind of thing. It's like, it's, it's got certain, you know, attitudes, you know, I remember being sternly told this is back in the eighties when I was doing some tape trading, that you know, deadheads do not ask for money for tapes. You know, you're allowed to ask for a replacement tape, you're allowed to ask somebody to cover your postage, but you do not, you know, these these are not to be sold. Kind of all the all that kind of things. So there's I just feel there's so much involved in the phenomenon that that it's beyond just a spirituality sort of thing, that it is a religion. I think it's the difference is that it's it's a religious movement whose religious principles involve not becoming a religion in the bad sense.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I think
0: it's it's pretty it's it's dedicated to undermining the possibility of becoming an institutionalized sort of force. Right. Yeah
1: because it's the way the way they had a hard time thinking themselves as a corporate entity as they went on. And that, you know, they were, they were notoriously bad at managing money. And that's one of the things they said is that before Jerry Garcia died, you know, he said he had, they had to keep playing because he had at least people depending on him and they had to keep this machine going.
0: Yeah. Although that wasn't, I mean, there's also interviews uh, from that, in search of new search of new space or whatever, the, the interview book that he did with uh, Jan Wenner and Charles Reich, uh, where, Garcia is talking proudly about we are a good business, like we're you know we're proud of being. He sees he's, he's comparing them with Rolling Stone as a, as a cultural organization. He's saying yeah we 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 do good work we we, you know and that fits in with the with the prankster mentality of like the pranksters were, which is where the dead come from in so many ways. The pranksters were really about being efficient. Like, they were like, yes, let's take lots of LSD and do crazy things, but let's also be really, really functional. Like, we're not going to use this stuff as an excuse to be incompetent. We're going to be super competent, but maybe with some weird priorities. And I think the dead, likewise, like, I don't know. I mean, I think there was a lot of wastage of money, I'm I'm virtually certain. Uh, but... But part—I mean, part of that was soft-heartedness, right? Like they—they they paid their their crew really, really well, and they didn't lay them off between tours. Um, and part of that was a a sort of desire not to step on anybody else's trip, which you could argue was in some ways misguided. Like if if they'd come down harder with Garcia, he might have lived longer, like all that kind of thing. But I do think it was a principle that they had that we're not gonna tell people what to do. <laughs> I don't like being told what to do. So so if 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 Joe X says I have this amazing idea and it's going to cost $500,000, you know, there's a good chance that they'll say, "Yeah, that does sound amazing. Ah, go for it." kind of thing. So I, I'm not sure that it's how much of it's I haven't done a lot of research on this aspect of things. So I don't know how much of it's actual incompetence or mismanagement of the money and how much of it's just principles that are not tremendously conducive to to Efficient money management.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And all you're going back to your other point about you know religion and and how that was done. Of course, I guess that makes David Lemieux like one of the high priests now because you know the religion is still going on and he's out there proselytizing to all of us about you know Dave's picks. But God bless him, right? So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so um, I want to ask you this: at the end of your book, you say improv is, and this is your phrase here, and I love this phrase: it's a strategy for creating wormholes. So, talk about that.
0: <laughs> sure. So, you know, there's that James Joyce quote: uh, "History is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake," um, and I don't. I, I'm not quite like I'm, whatever privileged middle class North American, so I don't have the full nightmare <laughs> appreciation of history that that some folks do. Um, but I, I still, I've always been interested in in escaping from culture, um, or not even sure about that so much. Um, I'm interested in seeing, I believe that there's something beyond culture. Like I believe that humans are not exclusively defined by our culture, but there's something, some sort of transcendent or whatever you want to call it, spiritual essence to us. Um, and I know that lots of people don't believe that, and I'm fine with lots of people not believing that. But for me, I I do feel that there is that core that's beyond culture. And I'm interested in the roads that connect that transcendent level of being with culture, going both ways. That sort of let let the culture in to sort of, uh, or no, sorry, let the transcendence in to sort of give validity to the culture, and on the other hand, that sh- show culture creating, like leading us up to escapes into transcendence that are that 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 have a history that have a legacy uh, in terms of the the cultural context that 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 we use to get there. I don't know if that makes sense. So it's it's sort of, I it's tough to explain. I guess I'll take it as an example, say uh the Miles Davis album Kinda Blue, which to me, on the one hand, completely rooted in a particular culture, like from the instruments to the approach to the playing to the melodic choices that people are making, you know, to all that. Like it's it's clearly a a late, mid to late 1950s. You know, African American jazz, sort of mostly African American jazz, um, sort of expression, definite particular culture. There, on the one hand, on the other hand, there's times when I listen to that music and I just go, "This is universal." You know, this is this is bigger, Uh, and I feel like with any with any great music, there's that. I mean, Bach, likewise, like he was a German from you know early 18th century, but. There's also, he touches on something big and universal. And so I feel like the two go together. And so, yeah, I'm interested in how we get back and forth, how we navigate back and forth between that universal and, and sort of our culture bound level. Um, and the wormhole to be, to me like improvisation seems to be a way of building, like I say, wormholes that can, perhaps, ideally, get us access to that sort of transcendent level of things. They don't eliminate where we're coming from culturally, because you can't do that. But they, they're trapdoors doors, or they're, they're ways that we can get out of this cult, sort of cultural space, and into something sort of bigger, with energy that we can bring back into the cultural space. I mean, I think whether or not we can reach that space, it's important to think (laughs) it might be possible to get there. I think it's like, but it's different. I mean, you know, you get things like, you know, Plato and his idea of the cave and all that, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, I think it's pretty universal that we do see desires for people to escape from immediate culture and to touch something sort of transcendent and huge. Um, You know, and I think even if we don't take it just as an escape thing, if we're not seeing both sides of it, we're missing, like if if we're not seeing the transcendent part, we can get really stifled by just, it's like being entrapped in a room where the windows are closed and it's a lovely room, but still I can't breathe in here and, you know, the carbon monoxide count is going up or something. On the other hand, if we're just focusing on the transcendence idea, then we're pretty useless in the world, you know, like in the world that our bodies actually live in. So I feel like, we need to navigate back and forth between these things, and that's to me improvisation is is one way that folks can do it.
1: Yeah, that's beautifully said. Because because w- wormhole is such a great a great metaphor because you think about like sci-fi movies or so like we have had a rift in the space-time continuum and it takes them to a parallel universe or like you know Star Trek they go back in time to, they're in the Roaring Twenties or something, but like. I think it's fair to say, and you got me thinking about this. Like, that's what great art does, right? It takes you out of your present moment and the, the mundanity of daily the, the, the life, and it shows you, like, like there's something bigger than just this record here.
0: I would say it does even it's even more complex or subtle than that. There's, so there's a great quote David Gans in a book of Grateful Dead interviews. Um, somebody I forget I'm paraphrasing here, but somebody saying so. You were a deadhead, and then you started working with the dead, and. Um, did it lessen like you when you were deadhead, you were like, Oh my god, this is magic, this, you know, and then you got backstage and you started to see how the machine works. Did that lessen the magic for you? And Gan says something along the lines of, yeah, it did for a bit. And then I realized it's oh my god, there's this machine that makes magic. You know, like like the, the magic isn't, I think it's naive to go, I just want pure magic. You know, it's, we're, we're human beings, we're in, we're in bodies in a world, the really, to me, the really coolest thing is when we go, okay, I built this machine, and this machine makes magic, <laughs> you know, what what is up with that? And that's, just, to me, that's the nifty thing, like the wormholes, not that I don't want to go off and become a hermit sitting in a cave and ignoring the rest of the world, but I do want access to the outside when I need inspiration or when, when I needed a, a clearer view.
1: Yeah. like you just point out, if you had that, if you had that feeling, you know, if you're like, you know, 14 years old, I, I would have feel like this all the time. Well, you'd never be able to drive a car or hold a job or go, go to the supermarket. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd be useless. Yeah. Which, and I mean, we go through useless periods and sometimes we need to,
0: but I think, and it's also just fascinating, like how, you know, retracing people's footsteps, like you, you know, if you just listen to John Coltrane as just for itself as a statement of transcendence, that's, that's fine. But, but what's really fascinating is how he comes out of a specific place and time and sort of headspace and how he builds his particular transcendence out of those elements. Like that's, that's nifty.
1: That is nifty, certainly. So last question, I can't resist asking you this. You talked about the research you did, you know, research can be grueling, but you know, if your research is listening to dead shows, you know, th- there's that, that's not a, you know, I got to do research, got to research, right? So somebody comes up to you and says, okay, I want to hear some great shows from say the first decade of the Grateful Dead that feature incredible improv. What What are some of your go-to shows?
0: Okay, I'm gonna preface this by saying I have no, critical, <laughs> right I now. I like with with holes with shows, I just don't have critical distance anymore. I mean, I've been listening to the Dead on and off for a, a very long time. Uh, yeah, it would depend on the person, right? Like, so one show I keep going back to, and again, I can't say whether this is because it's an absolutely awesome show, although there's folks online do tend to agree that it's a great show or whether it's just because it was the first really good show with really high sound quality that my buddy Rick Campbell introduced me to back in 1987 when we were getting into this stuff, but is the Avalon Ballroom from October 12th, 1968. I love that show. Like that's just, it's not, it's youthful. I mean, the singing is sometimes not great. They don't have, they haven't developed the repertoire of songs they would have later. It's, it's just sort of go, 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 but it's, I think it's glorious. Like it's just it's young young folk figuring out what they can do and just going for it. So that's if the person who was talking to me was somebody that I felt didn't didn't necessarily need songcraft or or elegant singing voices or something like that. I might well refer them to that show. Um, 1972 as a whole is my favorite year, just because I feel like they've got everything like they don't have some of the repertoire unfortunately in that like i would have loved i wish they'd written terrapin station five years before they did or something like that but but in terms of the playing i feel like they're at that point they're they're able to do pops like folk pop songs quite well the singing's fairly good um they're still they're still able to go into like gonzo like you know, aggressive psychedelia if, if they want to, although they don't want to that much, but, they, but they're but they still able to do that. They're able to go into really spacey stuff. They're starting to get the jazz rock kind of thing going. So I feel like 72 is maybe my favorite year. And I don't know for that, like, I don't know, the Vanita, Oregon show that they did on August 27th, a lot of folks would say is superb. And if I were talking to somebody who wasn't already really into the dead, I might well recommend that just because I feel like it covers... The whole range of of what they can do really, really well. What about you?
1: What's do you have a favorite uh, well, show? Or? My favorite year is seventy seven. You know, as you know, talking about this, like when people talk about like the the best, the ten best baseball players or something all the time, or the greatest movies. Like as soon as you start making a list, you're you're opening yourself up to objections, right? So it also depends on when you got into it. Like how old were you the first time you saw the Dead and all those other, you know, all those other kind of things. But I was just listening the other day and I said to myself, I'm like, if I had to pick a year, I'd pick seventy seven. And I thought the same thing you did, which is that it's too bad we can't hear the dead from the early seventies play the songs they wrote later on. Like that, when they were really clean in the early seventies, like that would be great to hear, wouldn't it?
0: It would be amazing. Yeah. But they, yeah, I, I mean, there's amazing 77 shows, but I have a, I feel like Mickey Hart is awesome in the early days of the dead, but I feel like when he rejoined the dead, well, I don't, I'm not meaning to blame him entirely. I don't know whose decision it was, but They like the fluidity of Kreutzmann's playing, you know, between 71 and 74 is gorgeous. And that fluidity, like they gain other things with the two drummers again, but they lose that loose limbed sort of beauty of him playing.
1: Yeah, maybe AI will solve that for us one day and we'll get to hear you know, the 1972 <laughs> dead play Shakedown Street or something. That would so, <laughs> be yeah,
0: terrifying.
1: It would be. So <laughs> Michael Kayler, it's been great talking with you today. Get Show in the Light is published by Duke University Press. It's available wherever books are sold. If you're a deadhead, and especially if you play a musical instrument, I have to stress that, it's a must read. Thank you so much, Michael.
0: Thanks very much for having me.